whose intention is to make Jews feel doubly bad. There are many ways denial sets out to do this, the most common being to deploy the logic of retrospective guilt. You will be familiar with the strategy. By virtue of the way Jews cynically exploit the Holocaust to serve their political and financial purposes today, are they shown to be deserving of what they suffered yesterday? or rather, since there was no holocaust, what they ought to have suffered yesterday. Interesting how every denial of the holocaust throws the shadow of a holocaust that should have been. Very few deniers want the holocaust not to have happened. They only argue that it didn't. Beneath which argument, which is more a refutation of what's seen as Jewish propaganda than it is a refutation of the event itself, we hear a deep longing that the Holocaust had been executed more ruthlessly, a perfect Holocaust being one that left no Jew behind to profit from it. We can speak of such a perfected Holocaust as the wish-fulfillment of the denier. But let's go back to our original formulation. When will Jews be forgiven the Holocaust? John Gray is not the first to have posed that question. In his 1986 book, The Eternal Anti-Semite, the German-Jewish writer Henrik Broder quotes an Israeli psychoanalyst, Zvi Rex, as saying, The Germans will never forgive the Jews for Auschwitz and as early as the 1960s, Theodore Adorno and Peter Schoenbach are employing the term secondary antisemitism to describe a recent form of antisemitism whose cause is not any one of the age-old charges brought against Jews, but Auschwitz. This secondary antisemitism doesn't flourish in spite of Auschwitz or somehow alongside Auschwitz, but because of Auschwitz. All these writers direct us to the same extraordinary reversal of moral obligation. For what we did to you, we cannot forgive you. I think it's important not to confuse this with compassion fatigue. I recall traveling with a young German taxi driver back from Dachau to Munich some years ago. He wondered, more politely than curiously, what I thought of what I'd seen of the camp. Had I enjoyed my visit? Enjoyment is not exactly the word I'd use, I said, but I was more interested in hearing whether he'd been inside Dachau, and if so, what he thought of what he'd seen. He'd been many times with his school, he told me, too many times. He was, since I asked, getting a bit bored with it all now. He said it in a matter-of-fact way, assuming I'd understand. And I did. But I also felt I had to find a way of saying that if it was his bad luck to have to go on hearing about and visiting Dachau, it was even worse luck for those who'd been interred there. Occasionally one's patience must be tried, I said, giving him a good tip. Of some events there can be no hearing too much. The ancient mariner in Coleridge's great poem of obsession must tell the wedding guest his tale over and over and over again.
And if that means the guest misses the wedding party, well, life isn't all fun. It's frequently argued that this insistence on telling the story is self-defeating, that eventually it will weary even listeners more sympathetic than my Munich taxi driver. We are to learn from the boy who cried wolf, try it too often, and at last no one will come to our assistance. But what if we aren't crying wolf? What if we aren't telling lies or exaggerating even a little? And anyway, who came to our assistance the last time? On occasions when I have addressed the subject of anti-Semitism, and if you address it once, you are accused of addressing it all the time, people have written to me insisting that while they don't have an anti-Semitic bone in their bodies, if I don't shut up about it, I am in danger of turning them into...